All right, well, we've been talking about the practice of biblical discipleship. And this month, February, we're going to spend four weeks on that theme, the practice of biblical discipleship. In January, we, we talked about the practice of, of genuine worship. What is genuine worship? Why is it important? What kind of worshipers is God looking for? Discipleship, like worship, is a practice that we have to dedicate ourselves to. We have to prioritize doing it because as we do it, as we engage in it, it draws us closer to God. It grows our faith. It deepens our relationship with the Lord. So we're talking about the upward practices that deepen our relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And discipleship is the second of those practices. So because we're focused in on this theme of biblical discipleship this month, I thought it would be helpful actually uh, to have Carrie Alvaro come and share just a moment because Gerald and Carrie are the leaders of our discipleship ministry and uh, they have some vision about how this is going to work itself out in the life of our congregation and I would love for you to hear from Carrie just a little bit about how discipleship ministry works here at CCV. So, well, um, we've been looking into discipleship and kind of doing some research and asking around to find out what has what leads to effective discipleship. And one of the things that we've continually found is that for lasting effective discipleship, it best takes place in small groups of people living together and centering on a truth, centering on Jesus, centering on caring for each other praying for each other, having accountability with each other. And um, what's exciting to us is that we have some of that happening in our church. I know that through uh, the men's group and through some other small groups, and last year we kicked off some discipleship groups. To We just wanted to experiment with it and see how it was going to go. We encouraged people to get in groups of three or four and, and see what would happen. To uh, We suggested a book, Discipleship Essentials, which um, – it worked to some degree, but I think one of the things that we learned over this last year is it's not as much about the material as the fact that you're coming together, you're caring for each other, and you're living life together centered around a truth that you're trying to grow in. And uh, so because of that, um, we, have, we would like to encourage you all to think about getting involved in a discipleship group if you're not already and um, we've compiled a list of different resources that we have even in our library here at the church, just books you could go through, not to mention just going through the Bible if you wanted to go through the Bible. But we really want to encourage you to think about joining with some others. And you might think, who could, who would, who could I gather with or something? And I think, think about reaching up to someone who has maybe is further along in their spiritual journey than you are, and reaching out to someone that you think, I would really like to help them grow. And think about doing it that way. You know, think about who you can invite to be part of a group. And also, if you think, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't, I'm interested in this, but I wouldn't know where to start, we're going to send around a, um, just a little discipleship group interest survey that we'd like everybody 
to fill out. It just kind of asks, are you currently in a group? Would you like to be in a group? Would you like help finding a group? And then just some contact information so we can know. And Daryl and I will be following up. We're going to try to get around to everybody and find out, you know, are you in a group? Is there something we can do to help you? But like I said, I have a group. I have a pile of books up here this morning. I have a list of resources if you want to look through things and think, yeah, I think I'd like to study that with somebody. And it can be people in the church. It can be people outside of the church, from your workplace, in your neighborhood, whatever. But be together in groups growing. And we've asked Marla if she would share this morning. She was in a group over this last year, and we'd love for her to share a little bit of her experience being in a group. Um, so I want to start off with a little story. Um, I have a friend who's a massage therapist, and she asked me about a year ago if she could give me a massage, and I thought, well, I don't really need a massage, but whatever. So this year, um, it took me a whole year to actually go to her. And when I got there, she said, um, do you have some problem areas, some areas that you need work on? And I'm like, no, I don't really, you know. There's not really anything that I need you to work on. So she started working on my shoulders, and I said, oh, <laughs> I guess maybe I do need some work. There's a little stress there, <laughs> and she would work on my neck. And, um, and it's kind of like that with this, this group, too. Last year, when Carrie and Gerald um, invited us to um, – a discipleship group, I thought, oh, yeah, you know, I've been in some Bible studies. They've been wonderful, and um, I'd really like something, you know, not really anything that I'm thinking that, you know, I really need to work on this area or whatever. Um, and we went through the discipleship book with, um, there were three of us, and it was good. It was good to get together. Sometimes we got together at a house. Sometimes we got together at a park when it was nice. And our kids would come, and they would um, watch the little one and and play, and that that was great, you know. And then um, now we're actually meeting at the church, and um, so we've gone through this other book. This book we're going through now is called *The Uncommon Woman*, and it's been really, really good for us. Um, it, it talks a lot in here about breaking down lies that the enemy has told us, breaking down lies that we have told ourselves, and um, praying for one another. Um, this last week was really good. We just shared prayer requests and prayed for one another and um, trusting God for victory. Um, make sure I, you covered some things, which I appreciate, because the more I thought, the more I thought, oh, I want to share that, oh, I want to share that. But I think Kevin wants to share something, too. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but just to be able to stand together with someone else, you know, having a personal Bible study is super important. <laughs> but to stand with someone, to stand with a group of women or group of men who say, you know what, that is not the truth. You know, the enemy is telling you lies. And this is what the Bible says. And you need to stand firm in that truth. And we're going to stand with you. Um, and we've seen that happen. It's been really neat. Um, we always pray that God will renew our minds. Kevin talked about that last week. Renew our minds, God. Help us to think like you. Um, and I want to say it's not a book study. It's a Bible study. It's a getting deeper 
into the word and knowing who you are in Christ. Um, it's not a, a you know, high knowledge thing. We gain all this knowledge. Um, so I, I'd like to encourage you, if you're, if you're out there, you feel lonely in the midst of church, talk to Gerald, talk to Carrie, um, talk to other people. Um, find someone or a group of people to get together. Um, sometimes it takes a while. And I also want to encourage, um, and I know you've said this, but this isn't just for women. We get together, and we actually get together for like four hours. Um, <laughs> my husband, he gets together with a group of men, and I'm so thankful for, thank you for the men who are in his group. He's a great husband because of you. Um, partly, you know. <laughs> um, and I think they meet for, what, 45 minutes or something like that. <laughs> I know it's a long time for them, but um, <laughs> but um, anyways, I just want to encourage you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Marla and Carrie. Great job. Good to hear about how God is at work in our midst through those groups. And I want to just say yes and amen. It's a good thing to walk together as we follow Jesus and. Uh, to find ways to be in meaningful relationship with each other helps us, each one of us, to deepen our relationship with the Lord. So we're going to look at a, uh, another aspect of this passage of Scripture from Matthew 16. We began to look at this story last week, and we're going to use it really as the basis of our study on the practice of biblical discipleship. Not that there aren't, of course, other passages that speak to the priority and the practice of discipleship in our lives, but this one in particular is compelling for me, and that gives me some excitement and some enthusiasm as I teach about this subject. So let's turn our attention back to Matthew 16 again, and we're going to look specifically at the first part of this story, Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20, which is known as the account of Peter's confession of Christ. So Matthew writes, when Jesus came, to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This morning, as we continue our our exploration of this passage and our study on the theme of biblical discipleship, 
I want to dig into this first part of the story with you. Last week we read a little further through verse 28. But this first part of the story, known as Peter's confession of Christ, is really significant for us to understand and think about together because it really captures for us the first step on the pathway of discipleship. Confessing Christ doesn't necessarily mean that we will do everything else right in our journey with Jesus, but at the very least, we have to get this right. We have to understand who Jesus is and what he came to do for us. Because apart from that, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So I want you to imagine this morning that Jesus is posing this question to you. We can read about it and we can think about it you know, historically. We're going to talk about where they were and what they were doing and why Jesus went to this particular place to ask his disciples this particular question so that he could share a very particular insight with them in that location. But I want you to personalize this from the very outset of my message this morning. I want you to think about the question Jesus posed to the disciples and imagine that he's asking you, who do you say that I am? If Jesus were standing here right now, perhaps that would be the first and most important question he could ask any one of us. Who do you say that I am? And your answer to that question is critical because what we believe about Jesus has everything to do with whether or not we choose to follow him and whether we identify ourselves as his disciples. If you want to grow in faith and in spiritual formation as a follower of Jesus, then you have to become a follower of Jesus first. So here's step one on the pathway of discipleship. In short, biblical discipleship begins with understanding and accepting who Jesus is and what he came to do. That's where it all starts, right there. And that's what we see in this story of Peter's confession. Notice what, what Peter says in response to Jesus' question. In response to the question, he blurts out, and I don't know how he said it. I'm not sure if he said it sheepishly or if he said it confidently and boldly. I'm imagining that he was pretty sure of his answer. Said it with enough conviction so that Jesus could hear it. He didn't mumble it. And the good news is that from Jesus' response, we understand Peter got the answer right. Peter got the answer right. Matthew 16, 16. He says, you're the Messiah the Son of the living God. Now think about that answer. I don't know what that means to you. I don't know if you understand the significance of those words that Peter used. But they're very significant because they capture something essential about the identity of Jesus and about the ministry of Jesus. 
This is a statement about more than just Jesus' identity because these two titles that Peter uses speak to the purpose for which Jesus was sent to earth by the Father in heaven. So what does it mean to know that Jesus is the Messiah? Maybe this is a word you're familiar with, or maybe some of you aren't so familiar with it. I trust most of you have heard it before, but do you know what it means? Messiah is our way of saying in English what in Hebrew would have been said like this, Yeshua HaMashiach. I know it sounds like I'm, you know, coughing something up or sneezing, but Yeshua HaMashiach is the Hebrew term Jesus, the Messiah. And this phrase literally means that we are identifying Jesus as the anointed king who was promised to come. Prophetically promised to the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament. If you read closely and you're aware, there are lots of prophetic promises in the Old Testament about a king who was to come to reign over God's people, Israel. And so in Jewish eschatology, the term came to refer specifically to a future king, a Jewish king, from the Davidic line who would be anointed to be king of God's kingdom, king over God's people, to rule the Jewish people during what they refer to as the Messianic Age. In fact, if any of you have ever wondered about the term Christ, Jesus Christ, we hear people say, uh, maybe a few of you have thought, is that Jesus' last name? What is that? No, that's, Christ is the Greek word that's the equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. They both mean the same thing. They both mean the anointed king. So when we refer to Jesus as the Christ, we're saying Jesus is the anointed king. Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the one that God said he would send. He's the fulfillment of all the promises that God gave to his people throughout the Old Testament era. So wrapped up in this title, Messiah, is an important assumption when Peter uses it here. Peter's really saying, Jesus, you're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one. We don't have to wait any longer. You're here, finally. You're the one that God promised would come to reign over his people as king. You are God's chosen and anointed ruler and leader of his kingdom here on earth. You're the great king that God has selected for us. That's the mindset that's wrapped up in this word, Messiah. So the purpose behind this title is that Jesus came to rule and reign over those who are citizens of God's kingdom, the people of God. And he came to declare the presence of that kingdom. That's the essence of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Enter the kingdom. Receive the kingdom. And in so doing, you have to recognize that Jesus is the king of that kingdom. But then Peter adds to that first title 
a second one that's equally important and significant. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The Son of the living God. What does it mean to know and recognize Jesus as the Son of the living God? Well, this phrase tells us that that Peter had begun to appreciate how Jesus was set apart from other people, other men, by a very unique and special relationship with our Father in heaven, God. You know, in Hebrew culture, the very interesting thing I learned as I studied this passage this week that I hadn't previously been aware of. Do you know if a, if a family has a baby boy, they would not refer to that baby, that infant, as their son. They would refer to him as their boy. Because you don't become a son until you go through your bar mitzvah. When you go through your bar mitzvah, you're recognized as an adult. That's the rite of passage in Hebrew culture. And only then, when you've gone through the bar mitzvah and become an adult in full standing, equal to, in relationship with with your parents, equal to them as a fully recognized and affirmed adult in your community, only then would a father identify his boy as son, his son. So for the Hebrew people, there's something very special and very privileged about that term, son. But then Peter says, son of the living God. Jesus is the son of the living God. This tells us that he represents the father's household and the father's interests. To use the language of verse 23, Jesus represents the father's concerns because he is the son of the living God. In other words, the language of sonship is a language of identification here. It's a language of intimate relationship, shared interests. Jesus himself actually helps to explain this to us in what I find to be a really helpful cross-reference from John chapter 5. Listen to these words where Jesus talks about his relationship with the Father as son of the living God. John 5, 18 to 23. John writes, For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus then gave them this answer, this explanation. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself, He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he's pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You see, Jesus is talking about here 
describing and explaining the uniqueness of his relationship to the Father, the living God, as son of the living God. And I think what's particularly insightful and, and compelling about this is that this kind of language is you know, just about got Jesus killed before his time. People wanted to stone him because they thought he was guilty of blasphemy for talking this way. That tells you something about the significance of this title, Son of the Living God. And then, of course, at the end of his gospel, John sums up everything that he's written about Jesus with these words. Listen to this. John 20, 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. There it is, right? John's using the exact same language that Peter used when he confessed his trust in Jesus, his understanding of who Jesus was. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the bottom line here. When it comes to step one in the process of discipleship, if you want to share in the life of Jesus, the abundant and eternal life that Jesus offers you, it starts with believing who he is and what he came to do. Receiving it. As for you. Do you believe it? Have you received? the abundant and eternal life of Jesus that comes with recognizing who he is and what he came to do for you. Friends, if you're, if you're here today as a seeker, if you're here today uncertain about what it means to commit to Jesus, following Jesus, but you're interested, maybe you're intrigued, maybe you're wondering about it, but you've yet to embrace the truth of who Jesus is and what he came to do. I just want to pause right here and encourage you and invite you to begin the journey of discipleship right where Peter did. You can do it right here, right now. You don't have to wait. You can recognize and receive the truth of who Jesus is. And all it takes is a simple confession like the one that Peter exemplified for us. I believe, Jesus, that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And I'm willing to walk with you as your disciple. I'm praying, and I hope you guys will join me in praying that over the course of this year, God would bring at least a couple dozen people to that recognition through our life and ministry together as a local church. And because I've been praying for that, now I'm watching for it and waiting for it. I'm, I'm expectant that God's going to do it. And I hope you'll be expectant with me. And if, if you're one of those couple dozen, if, you've, if you find yourself drawn into relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, I'd love to talk with you and pray with you after the service this morning. Please come and let me know. I can do that. 
you know, I want to share with you, before I move on to another point, just an, an example, an illustration of what I'm describing. Because what we sometimes forget, particularly if we've been part of the church and been followers of Jesus for a long time, is we forget about how life-changing salvation really is. Listen to this story about a young man named Brandon Duncan. And I found this on a website called truthsaves.org, which is loaded with dozens and dozens of stories like this, if you're interested in reading some great testimonies. Brandon writes, I'm blessed to confess that Jesus called me out of the dark to serve in the light. Part of my testimony was shared on the 700 Club at CBN. Of course, that's only a six-minute brief, and God has been working miracles and wonders since then that are also worthy to share. Jesus gets all the glory, for I am able only in him. He writes, I became an addicted alcoholic by the time I was in my early teens and started robbing and stealing to support my habits. At 20 years old, I was captured by law enforcement, convicted of armed robbery, credit card fraud, burglary, and drug possession, then sentenced to more than 30 years in jail. For 15 years, I was shuffled from prison to prison, seeing the inside of more than a dozen bloody institutions where for the first 13 years I lived a violent, hate-filled, hate-filled and vicious life. Facing a death threat once again, and already homicidal and almost suicidal, I cried out to Jesus in my desperation. And he rescued me from darkness, giving me life and love. With two years until my release, I studied the Word of God, corresponded with ministries on the outside, and finally in September of 2006 I was released. Since my release, I have been blessed and highly favored to serve in ways that I could never have imagined. I'm just a servant of Christ, but he made all things possible, and I became an ordained minister. Where I work as an evangelist. I perform most all pastoral duties and praise his holy name. I founded a youth outreach gang prevention ministry in 2009 called Fierce Youth Outreach. Jesus really does make all things possible. I am living proof, and I testify today to that reality. Seeing others come to Christ is the ultimate purpose in life. I pray millions more like me are reached, and so every chance I can, I share what's happened to me. Brandon's life is an example of the kind of change that takes place when we begin the journey of discipleship by confessing faith in Jesus Christ. But there's another side to this story. And with the time we have left, I want you to see something really significant about Jesus' response to Peter. You see, Peter gets the answer right. Peter answers the question and he gets it right. But then Jesus says something in response that's not just for the benefit of Peter. It's for all of us. I want you to look closely at the, at the words that Jesus speaks to Peter, and I want you to think about what they mean for you. Because these words were not just for Peter's benefit and blessing. What I want you to see with me here as we transition to Jesus' response 
is that confessing faith in Jesus is foundational to all else that God wants to do in us, for it connects us with his church, through which we overcome the enemy. This is an amazing insight that Jesus gives us in Matthew 16, verses 17 and 18. Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So there are multiple insights here that I want to touch on for just a few moments. Multiple insights about Jesus' words to Simon Peter that are significant for us to understand. And here's why. There are elements of this blessing, this promise spoken to Peter, that still apply to all of us. So these words are not just for Peter's benefit. They impact all of us. First, notice that Jesus gives Simon a new name. Previously, everybody's calling him Simon. And now, Jesus says, and you will be known as Peter. You will be called Peter. And that new name represents the new identity as a believer in Jesus that Peter receives and that each one of us receives when we confess our faith in who Jesus is. This is reminiscent, I think, of Paul's words in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. This is a familiar text to many of you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Right? We are new creations in Christ. We receive a new identity when we choose to recognize who Jesus is and what he came to do for us. What's particularly significant about this new name that Peter receives is the meaning behind it. I, I mentioned this just briefly last week. Perhaps many of you are aware that the, the name Peter in Greek, Petros, literally means rock. Rock. Peter's name means rock. And this, I think, is significant because it's what God is making him into. It's part of his new identity and his calling in life. So in response to our confession of Christ as son of the living God, the first thing that God does is he gives us new life in the spirit and a new identity in Christ. He may even give you a new name to be called by. It doesn't always happen that way, but I know many people actually that have taken a different name to represent the new life that they've experienced in Christ. Now let's move on. Secondarily, I want you to notice that Jesus promises to build upon this rock that he's referring to. The phrase here is actually a play on words. And some of you may know this. I've, I've taught on this passage before, though it's been several years. What I, what I think is so amazing about this is that Jesus is 
Jesus is really smart, right? Smarter than, you know, sometimes we can even imagine. And it's comical to me that down through the ages, theologians have disagreed about how to interpret this passage. And so you'll have, you know, this guy over here will write this and this and this. Well, I think it should be seen this way. And then somebody else will have a different opinion or perspective. Well, no, I think it should be seen this way. And I've actually heard multiple interpretations of what Jesus is supposedly meaning to say. And I, honestly, I'll tell you the truth. I think they're all right. Because I think there's a play on words here that Jesus was fully aware of. So how are we to understand what he says to Peter? What is the rock on which Jesus is going to build his church? Some say that Peter himself is the rock. And that's a viable option. The name change certainly seems to signify that there's some truth in that idea. As noted commentator on Romans, William Barclay puts it, Peter is the first stone of the whole church. In other words, Peter was the first member of the church, and in that sense, the whole church is built on him. This notion seems to fit with Paul's use of a similar image in Ephesians chapter 2. Look with me just briefly at Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. Paul writes, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So the idea here is that the temple is an analogy for what God is doing with the lives of his people, and that we are like living stones. And the first living stone that God began to build upon was Peter. But there's more. <clears throat> Others have suggested, well, the rock is not just Peter himself as a person. It's actually the confession of Peter. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. It's that confession of faith which becomes the foundation of the church, the rock on which the church is built. And so this interpretation then places the emphasis on believing the truth of who Jesus is as opposed to placing the emphasis on Peter as a person. And in 1 Peter 2, 4-7, Peter himself writes this, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. See, Peter's describing the importance of believing that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. So there's some sense in which his confession is foundational to the building of the church. 
And then one more option to think about, I learned from historian and Bible teacher Ray Vanderlaan, and again, some, some of you have heard me talk about this uh, over the years. At the time of this interaction, what's really interesting is that Jesus was standing at a place near the city of Caesarea Philippi. And in that location, uh, in fact, pictured here behind me, is a large rock cliff known as the Rock of the Gods. The Rock of the Gods. It was a place of pagan worship to the false god Pan. In fact, before it was renamed Caesarea Philippi, the city was actually named Panias. And at the foot of this large rock formation was a cave, which you can see pictured behind me, from which flowed the headwaters of the Jordan River. And this particular location was considered by the pagans of that area to be the entrance to the underworld. So you know what they referred to it as? Literally, that cave was referred to as the Gates of Hades. The Gates of Hades. So there's great significance to the geological, geographical location where Jesus spoke these words. And in one sense, it must be true that he was talking about building his church on this rock, both literally and figuratively. Because what he says is, I will build my church on this rock, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In fact, in the third century, some Christians, taking Jesus' words quite literally, actually built a church on top of that rock. Interesting little historic tidbit. So, whatever the case, what is it that this rock is foundational to building? And here's where things get really good, really interesting, and really insightful. The answer is the church. Whether it's Peter as the rock, or Peter's confession as the rock, or this particular location is the rock, or all three, in some sense, are true. Jesus had in mind that his church would be built upon the rock to which he refers in Matthew 16, 17. And what he tells Peter and the other disciples about the church still holds true for us, and it's really significant. He says, I will build my church, and that means that the church is his idea, that it belongs to him, and that he's the one who will build it. I can't tell you how many times over years that promise has been really encouraging to me as a pastor. Not my church. I don't have to worry about it. Right? It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the Lord. And I'm not the one responsible for building it. He is. That's actually really freeing. But then he says something else about his church. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Let me, let me begin here as we unpack this statement about the purpose of the church and God's intentions for it. Let me begin by helping you understand that the church is not a building. The church is not a place that we go to. The church is the people of God. Right? We are the church. We just happen to meet in this place 
But sometimes people commonly uh, think that the church is a building that they go to. No, what God says, what Jesus says, is that I'm going to build my church on the rock of Peter's confession. And when he's thinking in those terms, what he's really talking about is building us into a community of faith. Building the people of God together into a living temple where the Holy Spirit dwells, right? So the Spirit of God dwells among the people of God. And when the people of God come together to worship Jesus, the Spirit of God is present in their midst, dwelling in their midst, moving in their midst. We are now the temple of the living God. That's the language that's being used here. The message here is that the church is the people of God who are called out from the world to walk and serve together as they follow Jesus. And this is important for us to think about because sometimes I, I fear that because of the culture we live in, we make following Jesus far too individualistic. Oh, it's about my relationship with the Lord. I just have to do the right thing. I have to make the right decisions. I have to walk in obedience and intimacy with Jesus. And we think and act as if it's all about this personal one-on-one -on -one relationship. And there is some truth to that. It is a one-on-one -on -one personal relationship. But Jesus says to Peter, in response to Peter's confession, Peter, you are so blessed for getting the right answer. Here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to place you in a community of people that share the same conviction as you. And I'm going to build out of that group of people a community of Jesus followers that can help each other, that can strengthen each other, that can encourage each other, that can bless each other, that can pray for each other. You see, what God has in mind here is far beyond the individual blessing of Peter. He answers Peter's confession with an explanation about the building of the church. What does that mean? It means your faith is not meant to be understood individualistically. You're not a, a Christian or a follower of Jesus in isolation from others. We are disciples walking together as we follow Jesus. And that is vitally important to understand so that we can live it out. Listen closely. I, I know that churches have issues. We have our own, right? We're not the perfect church. In fact, I, I'm fond of the saying that if you ever do find the perfect church, make sure not to stick around because you'll ruin it. But despite all the shortcomings and failures of any given church, the church was God's idea in the first place. His idea, not ours, right? We're just trying to carry it out the best we can. And he intends, according to this promise, to build the church into something that bears the representation of his son to the world. So we're called the body of Christ. And we're called the bride of Christ. I mean, think about that for a minute. I'm just going to pick on Deej because he's being responsive over here, and I appreciate that. What do you suppose would happen if I just started bad-mouthing Deej's wife, Vicki, 
I wouldn't do that. She's a great woman of God, and I love her dearly as a friend and sister. But how do you think he would respond? How do you think he would feel if he heard me bad-mouthing his wife? Oh, she's just got such a lousy attitude. She's nitpicky. She's, I don't I just don't like her. How would that make you feel? <laughs> do, you, do you know that every time you talk negatively and critically about the church, you're bad-mouthing the bride of Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? The bride of Jesus. That's what we are. That's what he's called us to be. The bride of Christ. Now, we're not perfect. Of course, we've got our issues. And we've got to work through those. I'm not saying we can't be honest about what those are if we're working toward fixing them. But let's not dishonor the bride of Jesus. Let's understand how beautiful God thinks she is. Friends, this is what God has in mind for his church. He's called us to take on the gates of hell and prevail. And this is the end of the message right here. I mean, this is, this is where Jesus goes. He says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's amazing. That's an incredible promise. That's a mission that we can give our lives to with confidence, knowing we're on the winning team, right? He's called us to take on the gates of hell. And, and what's particularly fascinating about this is that in ancient times, the gates of a city, a fortified city with walls all the way around it, you get the picture, right? The gates were the weakest point. They were the point of attack. If you could over, overtake the gates of the city, the city would belong to you. So in this language, Jesus is saying, the church is on the offensive, not the defensive. It's the gates of hell that are being destroyed and overrun by the church. So when we think about what it means to come to church and to be the church and to do church, it's not just about you know, entertainment, or it's not about being good people who meet once a week for a nice time together. We're here to do business. We're here to learn and grow in faith so we can follow Jesus more intimately and more obediently. We're here to worship with passion and power so that the Holy Spirit will move in our midst. We're here to go for it. God has called us to be overcomers. And we can only do that together. We can't do it alone. The church is not some insignificant little social club that makes us feel better about ourselves. If I can use militaristic language, though I don't generally like to do that, the church is being built into an army to attack the gates of hell. That's what God wants us to be about. By God's design and intention, the church is meant to overcome the gates of hell. And when we're working together, helping each other, serving side by side, encouraging each other, blessing each other, praying for each other, speaking into each other's lives, 
walking together as disciples of Jesus Christ, we can overcome our enemy and every scheme he brings against us, every weapon formed against us. We may not win every little skirmish, but the battle belongs to the Lord. And in the end, we know who wins. In short, Jesus' words to Peter teach us something very significant about discipleship. Because Jesus' words to Peter tell us that we are part of something bigger than ourselves. Bigger than our own personal, individual relationship with the Lord. We are part of the church of Jesus Christ. And if our focus is too narrow, if our vision is too small, the church and our own lives will never be what God intends for them to become. I'll close with just quick reference again to the story of Matt Rogers, our missionary. I prayed for him earlier. His mom was brutally attacked by an intruder at her workplace about a week ago. And I like this story because I've been getting emails and texts from Matt throughout the week. Maybe some of you are on his email list as well. And each day when, when a new update comes, it's full of gratitude and full of praise and full of um, just the wonder of how God has been at work. Here's a terrible situation, a terrible situation, a tragedy, and God is working in it through the prayers of his people, the church. Through the church, God is responding to the needs of this family, bringing encouragement, bringing healing, bringing wisdom, bringing support, and, and Matt feels incredibly blessed by the way that the church has rallied to the cause that their family is in right now. So I just put that before you because I think it's a great example and illustration of how when the enemy comes against us, bad things can happen, but God's purposes will be served as the church rises up together to respond to those challenges. All right, our time is up. We're going to press in on this a little bit further next Sunday. And we're going to talk specifically about the rest of the story in Matthew 16, where Jesus goes on to talk about his journey to the cross and what it means to follow him there. Hey, I've just been told that um, Vicki has an update about Sandra, who is in the hospital, uh, has been expecting twins and went into labor this morning. Would you like to share that with us so we can pray? Thank you. Becky, I think, was up there with her and got an update. Um, they don't think that Sandra's water broke after all, which is really good. Um, they are keeping her for observation for 24 hours because she has been diagnosed with preeclampsia, so be praying for her. Um, and they gave the babies uh, steroids to encourage the development. So most likely, um, as long as the Lord allows them to stay in, they will, but I think it's probably 
uh, going to come sooner than later, but we'll just keep praying that um, those babies are able to stay in and gain strength and their lungs would grow and all of those things would happen in the next couple of weeks while she's able to probably be on bed rest, I'm guessing. So a lot of prayer requests. An official one will go out through the email and the text. Um, and if there's anything else we can do as a body, um, we'll be in touch about that as well. So thanks. Mm -hmm. Fantastic.